The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Hey, my name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor. We have a lot of work to do this morning. If you brought your Bible, and I hope you did, would you open it up to Matthew chapter 11? Uh, we have hardback black book Bibles under every chair. You can open that up to Matthew 11. We don't put verses on the screen, so I'd love for you to open up a Bible. Matthew 11 is on page 816 in those Bibles. You can also open a phone or a tablet to Matthew chapter 11. Uh, online, there's a little tab you can click for Matthew 11 for the Bible. Please just get your hands on a copy of the text. We're going to dig into this text together. Uh, Today's text uh, for me has been one of the most formative stories in the scriptures on my faith journey. Just these these first six verses in Matthew chapter 11 have been some of the most formative pieces of of Matthew's gospel for me. Um, And I heard a sermon on this passage more than a decade ago, more than 10 years ago. And goodness, you ever had one of those sermons that just, I mean, it just knocked me off my my axis. It just kind of threw me. I mean, normally you listen to a sermon, you're like, no, it was all right. I mean, you come here, it's like, yeah, it's it's, it's all right. It's acceptable, right? But this was one of those sermons that just it just messed up my whole world and my whole worldview. Uh, and so here's why this is so meaningful. This has been so meaningful for me. Uh, this passage is about doubt. It's about doubting God. Um, and, and so this summer for me, the summer of 21, is my 20th spiritual birthday. So I, I became a Christian the summer of 2001. Uh, that's when I got saved. And, and so here's, here's what I know from, from two decades of following Jesus. Uh, there have been seasons since I started following Christ where I have wrestled with various levels of doubt as to the Bible, as to God's faithfulness, as to, do I really believe this thing? Like, those have been questions since I became a follower of Christ, seasons where I've wrestled. And, and there have been, like by nature, just by nature, I'm kind of skeptical. I kind of ask the devil's advocate questions. And there have just been many times where I found myself in a position where I'm like, Lord, I want to believe. Look, I really do. I really want to believe in Jesus, but I just have all these questions. I just have doubts. Like questions like, doesn't the Bible seem to contradict itself at times? What do I do with this? Questions like, how do you even reckon some of this stuff with history? Because we have other historical accounts that sometimes say something different. So what do we do with that? And then frankly, some of this stuff, can we be real? It's just hard to believe. It's just a, a worldwide flood and God saves a man and his wife, his kids, and then the animals two by two. By two. That. That's, that's in our, our book. We believe this, right? We believe that the center of this story is a guy who dies and then comes back from the dead. Like, that don't happen very often. Some of this stuff's hard to believe. What about what the Bible says about sexuality? What about what the Bible says about hell? What about what the Bible says about science? How does this match up with evolution? Does it? I don't know. Like, what about T-Rex? For real, it's like, where, does he, where do dinosaurs fit into this? You realize some people think they were roaming around with Adam and Eve in the garden? Like Eve riding a t- like a triceratops? That's weird. What do you do with this? How, how does it all work together? Today we're going to talk about doubts. And maybe the hardest doubt is this. How do I know that God is good when there's just so much 
pain and the suffering around me. That's one of the hardest ones. Now, here's what I'd like to be able to give you before we jump into the text. I wish I could just give you, here's the five easy steps for you to eliminate doubt from your life. Now, here's the five things that you can do to eradicate your doubts. I would love to do that, but the problem is if I did that, I'd be a liar. Like, I'd be lying to you, because you see, if there were five easy steps to destroy your doubts, like if I could package it up like that, here's the truth. In the last two decades of following Christ, I would have done those five things and I wouldn't have doubted, right? And I would have written a book about it. And I would have a boat. Like that's, what, that's how it would all have played out for me at this point. See, I just don't think there exists some easy formula for, for how to deal with doubts, like steps that you can take to get rid of all spiritual doubts. I don't think that is possible. So in the, in the same vein of all these sermons in the gospel of Matthew, I'm giving them kind of kitschy titles. I'm calling today's sermon this, don't stop believing. Yes, another 80s reference, and yes, that's journey, okay? Don't stop believing. Don't stop believing. Because this passage for me has helped me immensely in the midst of my own doubts to not stop believing in God. I I think you'll see this as we dig into it. Let's look at this. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Verse 1 is actually a, a transition verse, so let's start in verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. So let me contextually kind of frame up where we're at in this passage, okay? Uh, We find ourselves introduced to a character that we've met in Matthew chapter 4 named John. This is John the Baptist, John the Baptist, if you were raised in church, you probably know who John was, but John was known, his position was the forerunner of the Messiah. That was his position. He was the forerunner of the Messiah, which meant that in the Old Testament, uh, it was predicted that before the Messiah would come, uh, there would be one who would come who would kind of prepare the way for the Messiah. This is John the Baptist. That's who this guy is. And and John is, is a remarkable man in the scriptures in a number of ways. Maybe not, not uh, that which is least is the fact that he was Jesus' cousin. Like he's cousin to the Messiah. So I mean, that's, that's pretty legit right off the bat. Like you, got, you share blood with Jesus Christ. You're doing okay. So, so, uh, but, but there's more as to why this guy is, is just um, an unbelievable character. First, in, in Luke chapter one, uh, in the Christmas narrative, we find that, that John's mother, her name is Elizabeth, Uh, Here's the text, was barren, so she was unable to have children, and advanced in years. So she was too old to have children. So John was legitimately a miracle child. He was legitimately a miracle baby. Everyone tells their kids that they're special, right? They're like, oh, you're special. You're a snowflake. You can do whatever you want. It's a lie, Sorry, I, you, you can't do anything you want, and you might be special in some ways, but, but the reality is John's parents could say that with no reservations. He was miraculous. They had angels telling them about the birth of their son before he was born. That's pretty legit. They were way too old, and yet they conceived and bore a child. So he's a miracle child. Second, John is unbelievably obedient in his call as the forerunner of Christ, so as, as the forerunner, he was essentially a prophet, a New Testament prophet. And that meant that he was going to have to be homeless, never had a home. 
It's kind of a little crazy. Lived in the woods, right? He, he was just like, he would wear animal skins. He had this long scraggly beard. He'd eat, you know, bugs, locusts, and honey. Never touched a drop of wine or alcohol. Essentially, John's whole mission was to be a picture of radical obedience to God in order to kind of prepare the way. He called people to repentance, preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. And to, to that kind of job description, John goes, all right, let's do it. I'm in. I'm all in, right? Like, that's a high level of obedience. That's more obedient than you are. Certainly more obedient than I am. I mean, goodness, if God came to me and was like, hey, I want you to be a homeless preacher, I would just have to say, look, uh, I'm going to need more than, than, than that, God. Like, I'm going to need more than an audible voice. Like, I'm going to need, uh, I need to hear from you with a bush that's burning and yet not consumed. Like, if you can do that, then maybe I could do that. Uh, and, oh, by the way, I'm going to need you to go tell Marcy about this one. Because I'm not sure she's going to sign up for homeless preacher thing. Like, I'm not sure that that's going to go well. Like, and I don't think this is the time where I pull out that Ephesians 5 card of submit and just say, go for it. Like, I just don't think that's a good idea. Uh, so I'm going to need some help on this. Like, John is not questioning at all. He is just completely obedient to this call. So he's a miracle child. He ends up having a thriving baptis baptism ministry. And then one day Jesus shows up to where John is baptizing. And John says, uh, he sees Jesus and he says, behold, behold the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Like he's essentially like, hey, that's the guy I've been telling you about. This is the guy I've been pointing you to. And Jesus turns to him and is like, hey, I need you to baptize me. And John's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I should be baptized by you. And Jesus is like, well, I'm Jesus, so you got to do what I say. And so he baptizes his cousin. He baptizes Jesus. And the text says that when Jesus comes up out of the waters, the heavens are opened, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and they all hear the audible voice of God the Father. It's a Trinitarian moment. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit as a dove, and God the Father voice speaking at the same time. Now listen, I have baptized a lot of people, and it has never gone that, that great. Like, I love it. Like, we dunk them, and they scream, you shout and clap, and it's great. But never have I seen a dove land, and I've certainly not heard the audible voice of God. Like, John is legit. I'm, I'm pointing all this out to say, like, he's a miracle child. He's unbelievably obedient. He has a thriving ministry. He even gets to baptize Jesus, the Son of God, and he actually hears the audible voice of God. Like, if there's ever kind of a varsity-level Christian, it's John the Baptist, like he plays on a different playing field than we all play on. But John, as he continues in his ministry, one of the things that prophets did is they would call out the leaders of Israel for their sins. And so John takes that literally and he begins to call out the sin of Israel's, this area of Israel's leadership, a man named Herod. Now, Herod is the ruler of this region. And what he had done is he had taken his brother's wife and was having an affair with her. His sister-in-law, they were having an affair together and, and John starts calling him out for that. Herod doesn't like this. And so Herod has John seized. He bind, binds his, his hands and he throws that dude in the dungeon. There's no like due process. There's no trials. It's just Herod said it, throw him in the dungeon. And that's where he's at in our story. This all happened in Matthew chapter four, by the way. Uh, that's where we find ourselves today. John is now in prison. We don't know how long he's been there, but jo Jesus has been doing some stuff, okay? 
But now he's hearing, John is hearing about what, what, what the text says, the deeds of the Christ. He's hearing about all the stuff that we've read about in Matthew's gospel. Jesus healing, Jesus casting out demons, Jesus even bringing people back from the dead. He's hearing about all of this and, and yet he has some questions. So he sends his disciples to ask a question is what we read in verse two. Now here's the question. Look at verse three. And they said to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So picture the scene with me here. John the Baptist with all of his accolades, the forerunner of the Messiah, the miracle child, obedient, baptizing Jesus. Where does all of this lead? It leads to him in the dungeon, in prison. And I imagine that John at this point has to be thinking, this isn't how it's supposed to go. Right, like I was faithful. I, I did what I was asked. I shouldn't be here Huh, I wonder if, was that guy really the Messiah? Did I miss something here? So he sends his crew to Jesus and, and, and asks, hey, are you really the one? Are you really, I mean, I've been obedient. I have followed faithfully, but, but this isn't playing out how I thought it would. And, and so are you the one or, or should I, did I miss something? Should I be looking for somebody else? Are you really the Christ? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Or was I lying or at best ignorant? Was this just all a farce or are you really who you say you are, Jesus? I mean, I, can, can you hear his doubts and in his question? Now, if John the Baptist, with all those accolades, who actually Jesus later in chapter 11 will go on to call the greatest of those born of women, which puts him in an elite bunch, if he can have a season of doubt and question who Jesus and who he said he was, don't you think we might all doubt as well? It's the first point I want to make about doubts this morning, and it's this. It's okay to doubt. John isn't, um, John is a Christian. John is a follower of Jesus. John loves Jesus. John has given his whole life to preparing the way, to doing ministry for Jesus, and yet he doubts. He goes, this doesn't add up. This doesn't make sense it's not working out the way I thought it should. But, but, but notice, John doesn't freak out. John, he doesn't run from his beliefs. He doesn't do like a deconversion, deconstruction, kind of existential crisis moment here. He doesn't give up on the things that he thought and knew were true. No, what he, what he does is he shows us it's okay to doubt. And then he goes, I better go ask Jesus about this. I'm gonna bring my doubts and talk to him about it. He goes to Jesus with his doubts. He doesn't run the opposite direction. And, and here's the thing. I think it's hard for us as evangelical Christians because, man, sometimes Christians make doubting out to be like a sin of some sort. Like something that is, you know, a problem with you or even something like, it's like a cuss word. Like, don't tell them that you're doubting. What, do you not have enough faith? Do you not believe? Like, as if they're, 
Somehow belief and doubt are, are opposites. But Jesus, in his response to his cousin's doubt, he doesn't thrash him. He doesn't berate John. He doesn't get frustrated with him. He doesn't use his special title that he uses with all of his disciples. Whenever he's frustrated with his disciples, he calls them this. He calls them this pet name. He says, oh, you of little faith. That's his like pet name. Oh, you of little faith. He doesn't say that to John. He doesn't say, hey, are you kidding me? Am I the one? Are you serious, bro? Remember that spirit dove? Remember my father's voice audibly? You remember your mama was like 145 when you were born? Like, you remember that? You kidding me? Am I the one? Are you kidding me, John? Jesus does none of that. It's okay to doubt. And Jesus does answer John's question, but he does so in a strange way. Let's look at verse four. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. That's his response. That, that, that's, that's, leave it to Jesus not to give a clear yes or no. Right? Jesus could have been like, yeah, I'm the one. But of course, he would never do that. He would not want to make it that easy for us. But, but in the Jewish culture, actually, at this time, the way that he answers is very nuanced and actually even more helpful than a direct yes or no. Because Jewish boys, like John, would have, by this point in their age, memorized most of the Old Testament. Depending on aptitude level, every Jewish boy was educated and would memorize the Old Testament. They would start with the Torah and they would move to the prophets and the Psalms and the, the law passages. Like they would move through all of that and they would attempt to memorize the entire Old Testament. So when Jesus begins to list then all of these things that are happening in his ministry, that the blind are receiving sight and the lame are walking and lepers are being cleansed and the deaf they hear, if you're a first century Jew, you're probably thinking to yourself, wait a second, I know this list. I know this list because Jesus is actually referencing back to some Old Testament prophecy. He's compiling prophecy from the book of Isaiah. And scholars point out that uh, in Isaiah 26, 29, 35, 42, and 61, five passages that are messianic prophecies about what the Messiah would do, all of the things that Jesus just listed are in those five chapters. They're prophecies about the one who is to come. So Jesus is essentially, with his answer, saying, John, I am the one. I mean, look at the stuff that I'm doing, the deeds of the Christ that you are hearing about, those line up perfectly with what Isaiah said. There will be no other, my friend. I am the one. Now, here's what I would like to do. I would like to stop and end the sermon right now. That's what I would like to do. Because here's what I'd like to be able to tell you. It's okay to doubt. You bring those doubts to Jesus and he'll answer your doubts that he is the Messiah. Close the book pray, take communion, sing some songs, and go eat some tacos. Like, that's what I'd like to do this morning. And that's what I would love to do. But then, then Jesus adds verse six and screws the whole thing up. Verse six. And blessed is the one who is not offended 
by me. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, you have to do a little work. Remember all these messianic prophecies from Isaiah that that Jesus is quoting. We're not told how John responds when his disciples come back and bring him what Jesus answered. But, But I would imagine it sounded something like this. So just let's imagine for a moment what it would be like to be in John's position. When John's disciples come back to him, I imagine they begin to run through the list of things. And I would guess at this point, John gets up from his seat and maybe comes over to the prison bars because I would imagine he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what he's doing here. That's Isaiah. He's, He's quoting Isaiah. He is the one. Jesus is the one. And then they start listing all the stuff that Jesus is doing. And I bet John is like running through Isaiah in his mind. He's like, oh yeah, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Yes, 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 yes. I see what's coming next because he knows his Old Testament. He's very uh, aware of Isaiah's prophecies. And then the disciples, they end their long list with the poor have the good news preached to them. And John at that moment must've just said, and... Is that, is that it? That's all he said? You sure you didn't miss something? You sure you didn't? He didn't say, he didn't add anything else to that list, did he? Did I miss something? Because if you read the Isaiah accounts, those five chapters, there's one more thing that's listed that the Messiah would do. And actually, if you're doing our Fathom Bible reading plan that we started in January together, you would have read uh, Isaiah 42 this week. I read it this week where it's prophesied of the Messiah that he would bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. He says that in chapter 42. He says that in Isaiah 61 as well. Jesus failed to mention releasing prisoners. Jesus, no, John's disciples didn't miss something. He just, he just didn't say it. And then Jesus says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's my second point this morning. It's okay to doubt and suffering can increase our doubts. Suffering can and very often will amplify and increase the questions and the doubts that we have about God. Now, this is why this passage has been so monumental for me. And this is where I think we kind of get real about stuff when we read this passage. Because here's where we would enter in as evangelical Christians in, you know, the, the, in our day and age. Here's what we would often say. Well, surely Jesus meant to add it and just forgot it. Surely he meant that, right? It must have been a miscommunication because he is the one. John has been his faithful servant. I mean, he's done everything that he's been asked. He's been obedient. He's a good person, So surely it's all going to work out in the end for him, isn't it? Well, it doesn't work out that way for John. Because in Matthew 14, if you know the story, after about a year of being in Herod's dungeon, it's Herod's birthday. There's kind of a raver going on. Just a huge party to celebrate this Man, And just so you know how twisted Herod is, uh, his brother's wife, who he is now having an active affair with, her name is Herodias, uh, she sends her teenage daughter into Herod and his guests to do an erotic dance 
And Herod is so pleased by this little strip tease that his niece, teenage niece, does for him that he promises her a gift of anything that she asks at his birthday party. Well, she doesn't know what she wants, so she goes to her mama and mamas, who, by the way, is just as unhappy with John the Baptist as Herod is for calling them out on this affair. She tells her daughter, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus Christ, the miracle child, the one who baptized Jesus, the one with an immensely successful ministry, the one who did everything right, even heard, heard the very words of God audibly, is brought up out of the dungeon. And you imagine him emerging into the light only to see Herod and his mistress and a scantily clad teenager. And they shove his head down onto a chopping block and they pull a sword out and they cut off John the Baptist's head, the forerunner of the Messiah. And they put it on a plate and they hand it to a teenage girl, all to thunderous applause and cheers from a raucous and drunk crowd. And thus ends the life of the greatest among those born of women. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Does this story bother anybody else? It bothers me. And then I heard a sermon preached about this 10 years ago and, and it changed it for me because now this story, it resonates with me deeply. I mean, I'm, I'm relatively young. I'm, I'm still relatively a young man here, okay? And I've only been walking with the Lord for 20 years. So I've got two decades. Some of you, that's more than you. Some of you, that's way less than you. But when I first gave my life over to Jesus, like to, to love him and to serve him and to follow him, I just assumed that it meant that if I was gonna do what I was told, like if I just kind of did this thing right, I followed his commandments and did it right, that my life would turn out great. Like I just kind of assumed that. I don't know that anybody explicitly preached that to me, but I just kind of bought into that. Like I assumed my life would just work out and I would prosper and I wouldn't have significant sufferings and I probably wouldn't doubt or question or when I did doubt or question, I would have those answers. Like Jesus would just give me those answers. Like why does Jesus say, blessed is the one who's not offended by me? I think he says it because if you've walked with Jesus for any amount of time, is that how life plays itself out? I don't think so. See, I think he says this because if you believe the myth that I believed, that is, you know, popularized in a lot of evangel evangelicalism today, that Jesus is all about your health and about your wealth and about your happiness and about making life just great and good and awesome all the time. Like if you believe that lie, hear me, it will not be enough to sustain your faith when sufferings, which by the way, Jesus promises will come, show up in your life. See, when I first became a Christian, I really tried to do some work cleaning up my life. Like I really worked hard at trying to like do Christian stuff well, like be a good Christian. Like I started doing all the things I could do to quote, get right with Jesus. 
Like I loved him and I just wanted to obey him. And so I started to do things. And so as I started though, to, to clean up some sin in my life, I found myself immensely frustrated because I would get over here and I would start like kind of dealing with this patch of sin only to find uh, something sprouting up over here. So I'd leave that and I'd come over here and I'd start trying to take these sins out only to have those original sins start to sprout again. And I just kept going back and forth and I found myself just constantly struggling not to sin. And I wanted not to sin, but I couldn't figure out how not to sin. And I can remember being like, God, what are you doing? Like, I'm trying to follow you, but why can't I get this thing figured out? I'm trying to put my sin to death. Why can't, why, why isn't this easier? And I just started doubting. Then right after graduating college, I'd only been following the Lord for a few years. I got my first job as a church uh, youth minister. I was a full-time youth pastor, and I was excited. I was looking forward to serving the Lord. Full-time vocational ministry. I'm giving my whole life, my career, to Jesus. And, and so I was looking forward to it, getting pumped on it. And not two months, two months into me getting that first job, uh, I went and met my dad down in Colorado Springs for a dinner. And we sat down to eat, and he told me at that dinner that after 25 years of marriage he and my mom were getting divorced. And it like, I mean, I, I was 23 and it like knocked the wind out of me. And I remember I'm driving back to Denver, crying in my car as I'm driving, thinking about my family, essentially, what is going on here? And I remember praying to God, God, I'm giving you my life and vocational ministry. Like I'm, I'm, doing, I'm being faithful on the call that you have for me. And this is what happens? I thought, I thought that by giving my life to you, things were supposed to go well. A year or so later, I married Marcy. We, we did things right. I mean, like I do premarital counseling for couples. And so it's like, we did the things, like all the premarital things. We did premarital counseling. Like we saved ourselves. We were sexually pure for each other before marriage. I mean, we did all those things. When we got married, we started praying together. Like we started doing devotionals together, reading books. We're like, we're gonna pursue each other. We're gonna try and do marriage well. And we were committed to it. But many of you, if you've been around, you know the story. My, about a year after my marriage, Marcy got sick. And after weeks of it not getting better, we went to the doctor. And then the second doctor. And then a third and then a fourth. And on and on it went for years and no answers. My wife had to quit her job and she was on the couch five, six days out of the week, just unable to live. No answers, no relief. And, and if you've been in the doctor room scenario, after all the normal things are ruled out, that's when they start searching for the scary stuff. That's when they start looking at tumors and autoimmune disorders and cancers, lifelong sufferings. And I can, I can vividly remember, I was 24 24-year-old Chris sitting in the waiting room at the hospital while Marcy was having an MRI brain scan looking for brain cancer, sitting by myself in the hospital at 10 p.m. I don't know why they do MRIs at night, but they do. And I remember praying, 
And this isn't what's supposed to happen to us. This isn't what we're like. We're trying to follow you in our marriage, in sickness or in health. We said that, but I didn't expect the the sickness part to come in our 20s. Maybe later down the road, but, but this wasn't supposed to happen. My life was supposed to be going better than this by now, Jesus. What's wrong? Then my mom got a terminal cancer diagnosis. And then Marcy miscarried with our first child. And then I planted a church, which I thought this is the best. Like This is going to be the great joy in ministry, only to find it to be one of the most spiritually challenging things that I've ever done. Because now I'm the one who's called to go with friends to Children's Hospital in the NICU. And I've prayed over little ones who um, have no medical hope save a miraculous move of God's spirit. And I've been in those rooms and it's dark and I've prayed. I believe it. I've prayed for God to heal, trusting that he can. And then sometimes wondering why he, he doesn't. And then when you're the pastor, you live on the edge of being loved or hated. I don't know if you know that, but like sometimes it's a week to week thing, whether they love you or they hate you. And and I've had people who, who I've loved, who I've been deeply committed to, who I've been vulnerable with, who turn on me, hate me, who curse me, who walk away from me. It's like, God, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not what I thought it would be like 20 years ago when I said, I've decided to follow Jesus. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So Jesus is telling John the Baptist and us, what if you never get out of prison? Am I still enough for you? It's my final point this morning. Jesus is enough. He's enough. It's okay to doubt. Sufferings most certainly amplify doubts. But in the end, Jesus is enough. And this is what I think I feel the Lord give me for us this morning, because I think we need to hear this. Like when the job you thought was secure falls through, Jesus is enough. When everybody else is married, but, but you're still alone. Jesus is enough. When your marriage isn't even close to what you dreamed it would be. He's enough for that. When you get that phone call that just suddenly changes your whole life. Somebody has died. Somebody has cancer. Somebody's leaving you. He's enough for that. When your kids do things that are unimaginable, he's enough for that. When, when, when you're trying to beat that sin, to put it to death, and it just won't go away, it just keeps popping its ugly head up in your life, he's enough for you in that. When you just can't seem to get this whole Christian thing figured out, I just, he's enough. 
he's enough. And I say all of that, I don't mean to minimize any of those sufferings. I don't mean to minimize any of your or my sufferings, any of the stuff that I've just said, any of the stuff that you might be going through or have gone through. No, what I'm saying is that through the deepest possible pain, through, through tears and snot and heaving and weeping, you can cry out that he's enough. And that might be the only thing that you have to hold on to. So if in the last week or the last month or the last year or goodness, for the last many years, you've been just going, where are you? Where are you? How have you abandoned me? I thought you were with me. I thought you were for me. Jesus, where are you? If that's where you're at, I just want to say this. From John the Baptist, Jesus is enough for you in that doubt. And then I would also want to lay before you that, that maybe it's just no coincidence that you're here on this morning, listening to a preaching from Matthew chapter 11, this story, that, that maybe, just maybe, God might just be addressing your own doubts today. And here's the thing, I've given you no answers. Jesus actually doesn't give the answer that John was looking for. You may not have any answers to your questions yet, but maybe this morning the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and saying this, I am the one. There will be no other. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Don't stop believing. God help us. Let's pray. Yeah, Father, these are hard, hard words. Hard words from Jesus. Hard realities to wrestle with. But just because it's not easy, just because it's not simple, doesn't mean that it's not true and right and good. Lord, I do so, I'm so thankful that you would have this, providentially, you would have this message recorded, this, this, this interaction with John's disciples and, and the Messiah, because what it does is it, it impacts us so significantly. If nothing else, it just reassures us that even the most faithful follower of you can wrestle with questions and doubts. And thank you, Father, that you don't berate us and you don't mock us and you don't get frustrated and angry with us, but, but that you answer and you also remind us that, that you are enough. God, I pray for men, for women, for students today in here, in person, online, who, who this isn't theoretical for them today. They have questions today. They have doubts today. The, the waters are rising and they're not sure how they're going to, whether they're going to sink or swim. And, and God, I pray that this, this passage is, is like a soothing balm, like some ointment on that pain. Not that those sufferings are any less horrendous. Not that there aren't lots of hours of agonizing thought and prayer and study to see if there are even answers to the questions. But Lord, I pray there's this balm, this salve that, that soothes wounds today. 
those who have doubts would know that they can bring their doubts to Jesus and that he is enough. He is the one. There is no other. We bless you, Father, for the the faithful witness of John the Baptist. Thank you for this message, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.